Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a great new podcast. It's called The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser up to 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the election. Ride Home Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right. Now to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by Roger Misso, Democratic candidate for Congress in New York's 24th Congressional District. Roger, thanks so much for coming on today. Of course, thanks for having me, Nathan. It's good to have you. I know we've, we've been meaning to do this for a while. It's yeah. good to, good to <laughs> have you on right. the pod. That's right. Um, so for our listeners who may not know, you actually have a pretty fascinating background. Um, you're a Navy veteran, you worked in D.C. a little bit, and then you kind of went back home and now you're running your home district. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your path to where you are? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I would love to. Um, and hello to everybody out there. Um, I grew up in what turns out in the 24th Congressional District was the second poorest village in the district. The poorest one was the one right next door. We were rival high schools. Uh, uh, North Rose Wolcott was the poorest and I grew up in Red Creek. Uh, of course you don't know that when you're growing up. Your life is just life, you know. Uh, but it turns out that's how I grew up. Um, I was very fortunate through the luck of geography and time and space to um, be the beneficiary of a very good rural public school education. Hmm. And I was able to, through the dedication of teachers and staff and a community that really centered itself around the school, uh, earn a nomination to the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, which is where I did my undergraduate studies, right? I graduated from there, had a great time in Annapolis, um, and became a Naval Flight Officer uh, in the Navy. I flew in the back of the E-2C Hawkeye, which is a big plane with a big dome on top of it, a couple propellers, flies off of aircraft carriers, and uh, deployed twice in the Middle East, did the thing that you do when you're flying in combat operations, um, had a good time there, but I think the things about my military service that I'm most proud of are the four years during that time that I spent as a victim advocate for survivors of sexual assault in the military. Uh, it's just the core of, of who I am as a person, right? Like, and, and that's a topical issue right now, and you were ahead of it. Yeah, I, I guess it's always been a topical issue. We just haven't talked about it as ah, a country in a way, a way that uh, cuts through the BS, you know, and it is... For me, one of the worst statistics in our country is that for 
and this is a RAIN statistic, for every thousand sexual assaults that occur, 995 of those perpetrators walk free. Hmm. Um, and that cuts across civilian and military side of uh, things. So um, just from a military perspective, the reason why I became a victim advocate was because uh, it was a role that by law, every Navy unit was supposed to have somebody who was there as a victim advocate, and our job was to you know, go with the victim through the process of, and I say victim, I mean survivor, right? Um, you survive this kind of thing, and that's what I want us to get to uh, as a country, but uh, you go with the survivor through, whether it's you know, accessing medical, uh, mental health services, uh, if they needed faith, you know, chaplain services, um, and if they desire it, the, the military criminal justice process. Uh, and that is something that can take a very long time. And what I found was that it couldn't be just about me. I, my goal was to expand it so that you know, people saw it as their job to volunteer for this thing and to show that they were there for the people they served with. And we grew in a command of about 300 people. Uh, what was by law only required to have one or two victim advocates to a command of about 20 or 30 by the time I left. And it really wow. changed the culture of you know, what it means to have you know, your, what we call shipmates, right? What it means to have one another's backs. You know? So that's something that I'm proud of and uh, is something that maybe we'll talk about today, which is this idea of establishing justice, as it, we say in the, the preamble to the Constitution, for survivors of sexual assault and survivors of trauma. It's something I care very deeply about. But with a little byway there, uh, I went to the Pentagon uh, as a junior officer. I worked uh, as an aide in the Pentagon and then was very fortunate to be the chief speechwriter for the first uh, African-American woman in the country's history to earn the rank of four-star. Admiral Michelle Howard was a four-star admiral uh, and just an incredible opportunity to learn what perseverance means, what being first means, uh, the power of example. Uh, and representation and the fact that representation matters, you know, and diversity matters, and it, it actively uh, improves the quality of, you know, us as a military and us as a country when we think about it more broadly. So um, did the Navy, you know, after 14-hour days in the Pentagon, the Navy sent me to Harvard to get a graduate degree, which I was very thankful to have. Um, and, and what was that graduate degree in? It was at the Kennedy School. So it was a master in public administration. Um, it was, you know, one of my missions there was sort of to talk about how we bridge the civilian-military divide and how we talk better about, you know, to, to the civilian side what the military does and, and vice versa. So, Which is sorely needed in this country. We have a volunteer armed forces, so I think right. it's like 1% of the U.S. population actually serves, knows what it's like to wear the uniform. Um, what would you like civilians to know about life in the military, life in the Navy? I think there is a conception in this country, uh, probably abetted by uh, TV, you know, and movies, that veterans are either fighter pilots, right? You're either Maverick from Top Gun, or they're. Grizzled. I just was talking to someone about Top Gun earlier today. It's so funny you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, it's either that, or they're grizzled like Navy SEALs, or you know, people you know, infantry in combat. And it is true that we have many of those people, but they represent a very small minority of the service. Most of the service is doing jobs that support what we call those the pointy end of the spear, right? Yeah. That is a large majority. So really for people who think that, you know, 
the military is some like oh my goodness they do yeah some of us and sometimes it's crazy things but I usually tell people it was about uh, my job was about 90% sitting around and waiting and 10% actually doing the job that I was trained <laughs> for right so it's and that 10% goes quick you know so uh, but really what how that intersects with sort of campaigning and policy is we have a conversation in this country around trauma that I think is broken a little bit, mm. which is that some people's trauma matters more than others. And I call BS on that. Uh, everybody's trauma is equal. It doesn't matter how you developed it. What matters is that we take it seriously and don't continue to re-traumatize people, re-victimize people. That we create a culture in this country is something that I did and many folks have tried to do in the military and as veterans create a culture where people can go and get help because it isn't weakness it is simply dealing with what's going on in your brain right and we need to get to a place where folks feel comfortable doing that because we will be a stronger country if we can do that we will be a stronger military if we can do that so um, so it sounds like this is one of your top issues as part of your campaign plank are you advocating for greater access to mental health services things of that nature definitely definitely you know and it is it's important to lead by example and to talk about this is why I'm so thankful for the example of, of folks like Jason Kander who have been very public about you know even stepping off the campaign trail getting help you know Seth Moulton recently too Jason right? Kander was the Democratic nominee for Senate right. uh, he unfortunately lost but then he was going to run for mayor of Kansas City yep. and said you know what I need to I, I'm, I'm dealing with some PTSD things from my time in the military he decided to take a step back and he's getting the help that he needs right so we need to see that and we need to uh, really instill a conversation in this country around what it means, you know, what trauma means and, and how we access care. Um, and that does include increased access to mental, uh, mental health care and mental health services, um, not just putting dollars behind it, but thinking strategically as a country and for me in central New York as a region about where is that care? Uh, how do people access it? How, you know, what is their drive like to get there? Or their walk like to get there? You know, are they dealing with doctors? Are they dealing with physicians' assistants? Like, what is the quality of care, and how do people access it best? Um, and that isn't always just let's appropriate thirty million dollars and walk away. It's let's be part of the community and show up for people, and that's important. And you mentioned the the region of Central New York, your district, the twenty fourth congressional district. It is a mix of rural, suburban. And urban. That's right. So how do you how do you provide services and policies to such a diverse district like your own in a way that really tackles all the issues that are economic, that are related to people's health care, mental and physical, that are related to the opioid crisis, that yeah. are related to their access even to the internet, things of that nature. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that while we we all may live and operate in places that feel pretty different, there are some deep truths that connect all of us mm. right and it is uh, yeah. it is how we access services and how we access government and then how government reacts to us and treats us and that's why as me right a small town kid who grew up on the county line road in the second poorest village in this district feels you know I always felt like I never saw my congressman never saw my state senator rarely did I see the state assemblyman we didn't trust government. Government was the other. We never saw it. It just did stuff to us. It took stuff out of our pay. You know, it was too late paving the roads or plowing the snow or whatever. Uh, it is the same thing that I have felt, you know, being 
in, I live now in the city of Syracuse, right? Because as a kid, growing up in a small village, the city of Syracuse was the big time, right? right? That's that was the where, city. That was where people went. Syracuse basketball, right? That was the stuff, man. Uh, Syracuse basketball is still pretty good. They are still the stuff, right? But, uh, but I've been on the ground now on issues like the I-81 replacement project in Syracuse, which is one of the biggest racial justice issues in the Northeast, and the, the biggest issue that we're going to face as a region uh, for the next 50 years in Syracuse, most likely. Um, and knocking on doors, uh, Pioneer Homes, Centennial Gardens, walking around the west side, Merriman Ave in Syracuse, Skitty Park. You know, I've tried to be deliberate about being there, right? Uh, and what I have seen and heard and felt from people is the same stuff that I saw and heard and felt in Red Creek, which is Congressman doesn't show up here. State Senator, we have a new one now. Rachel May is amazing, and she does show up there. Uh, we have decent state assembly people. I'm a Pam Hunter is my state assembly woman, and she is phenomenal. Um, but they don't trust government either because they don't see results because there is no equality of outcome. Uh, there is just talk, right? People are tired of talk, right? And in, so, the, in the Trump era, it's easy to get tired of talk. I mean, this is the 24th congressional district is one of two districts in the country that went for Hillary Clinton but are still represented by a Republican member of Congress. And for someone like the incumbent to be in support of Trump's tax cuts, to not be speaking out against Trump's tariffs that are impacting the farmers, this is going to your point that your constituents they don't trust government because they don't see results. Well, they don't see results because the people in government aren't doing their job. Right. We have sort of weaponized this phrase of bipartisanship, right, or being a moderate. Uh, but really it hasn't led to any actual results yeah. for people. You know, you can't pay the bills with bipartisanship, right, with your congressman's alleged bipartisanship, right? And it's, uh, it's, it's just kind of a farce, you know. Uh, bipartisanship ought to mean actually getting stuff done on the things that affects people's day-to-day -day lives, and that is not raising their taxes to give these ridiculous tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires and people who already have money. It's not to vote to gut the Affordable Care Act to make it more difficult to afford health care, right? It's not to, as we see in our rural and suburban areas, to continue decades of corruption in agricultural policy where 77 percent of ag subsidies go to the richest 10% of farmers, and I'm using quotation marks, uh, because they're millionaires and corporations and members of Congress, right? It's this notion, and it is just wonderfully was summed up by Mitt Romney after the Citizens United decision, which will go down as one of the worst, you know, not quite as bad as Dred Scott, but up there, right? That corporations are people. They're not. Right? People are people, which is the most ridiculous thing to have to say in 2019, but when a corporation can afford a corporate lobbyist to circumvent or to influence federal legislation, but you or I can't because we're just scrapping by to pay our student loan debt or to find employment or to put our kids through childcare, which is harder and harder to find and costs more and more. Uh, we don't have that kind of influence, right? It is we've created a separate and unequal uh, way to access government. And the folks that have more money, the folks that are incorporated, can, of course, pay to be more equal than others, right? It's 1980. It's Animal Farm uh, right. in, in, uh, in real life. So it's uh, uh, people see through that. And, and the chicken's going to come home to roost here in, 
in 2019 and 2020. I, I like to say that I've never seen uh, an effective lobbying group for the working poor. It, yeah. it just doesn't exist. Oh my gosh, we talk about this and don't even get me started. I think, and my sources may be off, but I think if you add it up, all of the money that we have spent on anti-poverty programs in this country, public and private, you added it all up, and you divided it by the number of people near or below the poverty line, you could pay each one of those people $100,000 a year, hmm. right? It's ridiculous. You know, there is a, there is a, there's an industry, there's a racket around uh, the concept of, of alleviating poverty, right? There's a, a talk and a mad game, but when it comes to the end of the day, people don't, there are no results for people to see. And, and while we're on the topic of special interests, corporations, the, the, the scourge of, of campaign finance, hmm. are you accepting special interest dollars, corporate PAC dollars, fossil fuel dollars, any of that? No, no. We don't take corporate PAC money, fossil fuel money, lobbyist group money. Uh, we just don't do it. Uh, 2018, I, I think this was, it didn't start in 2018, but it was like the new hotness in 2018, right? Like candidates did that. Um, it should be expected of Democratic candidates in 2020, and it should be, if you're accepting this, then you're not, you probably shouldn't be the nominee. Well, I got to give credit where credit is due. Bernie Sanders ran his 2016 campaign without any of the right. lobbyists or special interests or corporate PAC right. dollars, and he proved to the world yep. that you could do it with grassroots Somebody's got to do it the first time, right? And you know yeah. what? From there, I think Beto was... You know the race in Senate that really said I can raise eighty million dollars or whatever it was an astronomical yeah. amount of money yeah. and make it work. And I think to your point, now it is the expectation that if you're serious about reform, you're not going to be taking these legalized bribes yep. from these from these big uh, corporations. Yep. I, I want to transition a little bit um, and talk a little bit more about your background on yeah. paper. It looks like you are just going up and up and up and up. Tell me about some challenges that you've had in your life. How have you overcome adversity? Yeah. Uh, we'll just continue sort of the, the, the life chronology there. So I left the service, active duty in the service after about 10 years. I'm still a reservist sort of in, in my part time. Um, and I, you know, as my wife and I sort of looked around at like, okay, what's next? What do we do? Right? I was serving in the Navy and you, we swear an oath. It's the same one that members of Congress take. It's the same one the president takes, and it's to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Some people take it more seriously than others. Well, apparently, but after 2016, even serving in uniform didn't really feel like we were doing enough. Mm. You know, and it was this notion of what are we doing? Because November, the November election in 2016. We had just found out that my wife was pregnant for the first time, or our daughter Amelia. Um, and we were very much looking forward to a world where we could raise her, where we had the first woman president of the United States. And having to call uh, my wife, a pregnant wife at 3 o'clock in the morning, and tell her that Donald Trump was president of the United States uh, is one of the most difficult phone calls I've ever had to make. You know, And we got serious about what kind of life are we building, where are we building it, you know, what does it mean to raise kids in this world today? It's something parents grapple with every day, and it is not easy. I just saw Andrew Yang uh, yesterday, and I think a Mother's Demand Action thing, uh, just break down crying, uh, talking with a woman who was explaining how um, her, her, her child had been killed by a stray bullet, and the other child watched. You know, and it's 
yeah. or when you you don't have to be a parent to be a public servant but being a parent changes you in ways that you cannot describe and it gets really visceral and really personal really soon right like the 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 failures and inaction of government are personal right and for Christy my wife and I it was we're done sitting on the sidelines and watching the pitches as they go by right like if we have the ability to do this if we have the ability to stand up for the people where I grew up uh, and where we wanted to raise our kids in central New York which we viewed I viewed Syracuse as the land of opportunity right Onondaga County you know Cayuga County is the land of opportunity right uh, what are we doing to step up for them right like how are we gonna make this you know a better place because Onondaga County gets a bad rap central New York gets a bad rap right uh, it's called a post-industrial economy, which means what? What? Uh, the corporations. The jobs have come and gone. The corporations they're, they're no have left, there. and right. we're all still there. Right. And what do we do? Right. Now retail is leaving, and what do we do? Right. And it is. This is what I like to tell people who are down on on Onondaga County, and it is. And no disrespect to people in larger cities, right? Like, if you want to go and you want to make a bunch of money, right? You want to try to make it real rich, and that is your number one goal go ahead this is what I tell you know my peers in the military who were leaving or out of grad school or college if you want to be filthy stinking rich okay go to New York City go to San Francisco but if you want to make a difference in real people's lives every day you have just as good a shot at doing that in Syracuse and Auburn and Oswego as you do any place else in the world you can build a legacy here you can make a difference and an impact in people's lives by being there for them and helping them shoulder this burden of corporations who left and we didn't vote for that we, nobody asked for that. Nobody said, Carrier, will you please leave, right? Nobody did that. So it's, you know, how can we transform government to actually show up and work for people? And it's, you know, that is how I think we come out of this moment, right? And it's not a personal adversity of mine, but it's adversity we face as a country, which is the post-Trump era is going to come, right? How do we build out of that? And it Hopefully seems it like, comes sooner rather than later. Well, it's going to happen in November of 2020, but the answer to that seems simple, but it is actually revolutionary, and it is show up, right? We have, you know, I love NGP and van and minivan, and if you know campaigns, you know that's how we organize, uh, but it has led to this drive for efficiency in our campaigns and in we how, how we do government and how we interact with one another in politics and what it has led to is efficiency drives us to places where it's easy to walk and knock doors and amass resources which is cities and dense suburbs uh, but what it is left behind are people where I grew up and the people on the fringes of Onondaga County and the three northern counties of my district we cannot cede that territory to Republicans and the forces of Donald Trump uh, case in point is I think a lot of folks view rural voters especially as like oh they're gone they're all racist they're all terrible even though the three rural counties to the north of my district only voted 60-40 for Donald Trump in the presidential That's election. That's a 20-point difference. It's a 20-point swing but we're only talking about a couple thousand votes in each county which is not a lot in the grand scheme of politics. You can knock those doors over the course of an election. Um, we had an event uh, at a supporter in the north of Cayuga County in a town where there is no Democratic committee. And we had 20 or 30 people there who all knew each other, had no idea that anybody there was a Democrat. Huh. So number one, there's your Democratic committee. But number two, right, like 
the reason why I think people <laughs> didn't know they were Democrats is to get there, you had to drive past three houses with Confederate flags out front, right? People don't feel safe being Democrats because they don't see the results. They don't, they don't see what's in it for them. They hide in the shadows, right? We need to show up here to have people's backs like we should do our basic government political organizing philosophy and say it's okay to be a democrat right these are the things we believe do not be afraid of them like we're in it together so so i went to high school in florida and in my area it was you know suburban and rural at times but i remember meeting people who basically thought that the d next to someone's name was toxic Mm -hmm. it meant automatic no way in hell were they going to consider that? Mm-hmm. Do you find that same kind of dynamic where people will write you off automatically because you're running as a Democrat? Yes and no. Uh, definitely there is that stigma associated with the D in deeply what we now view as red parts of the map. How do we overcome that? Stick I around. I don't care how we got there. Yep. I, I need to know how we overcome that. Show up and stick around. You know and. Do not be afraid to talk about values, to find the common denominator, because it is there. We all share some very basic things in common, right? Like, we all want what's best for our kids. We all want the place that we live to be beautiful and healthy and vibrant, right? We want to build an economy that our kids can grow up in and come back to and thrive in, right? We don't necessarily want them to move back in with us, but we want, you know, <laughs> we want them to be able to be close-ish by, right? Like, these are the things that connect us, and the Republican Party does not own those things. I grew up in a very, very conservative family, right? I mean, Ronald Reagan died in the wool, true Republicans, right? I think I remember in elementary school, like, getting real passionate about Bob Dole, right? Like, that's how <laughs> Republican we were, right? Um, And I remember the moment I became, because I was taught these values, right? Like hard work, fairness, accountability. Personal responsibility. But also taking care of people, right? This concept that family is more than just your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, right? Family is your neighbors, your community, right? That's how we get through the tough times. And we know it better than anybody in upstate New York. And somehow that became the conservative stances. Right. But that's not necessarily true. Yeah. And I will never forget the moment I realized that it wasn't true was um, my parents left uh, to go out to dinner, I think, one night in July of 2004. It was the summer before my senior year of high school. Uh, I was the oldest of three kids, right? So what does that mean? It means you control the remote control. You know, you control the TV. You're the big man in charge. Right, yeah. Whoo, those heady days. <laughs> um, and I will never forget turning on the TV at the exact moment that a skinny kid with a funny name, was taking the podium in Boston, Massachusetts at the Democratic National Convention. And I watched that whole keynote. And I said, there it is. That's what I believe. Those values, that vision that that Barack Obama, then a state senator, articulated were things I had always assumed were only the purview of the Republican Party, the conservative movement. And there is not a white America. There is not a black America. There's the United there States. United States, right? E pluribus unum ought to mean something because it once did, and it needs to again. Out and of many, one. I think that's what. Yep. It is. Yep. 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 You got it right. Good Latin. Uh, that's the extent of my Latin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We won't test that anymore. <laughs> uh, but it was so. My you know introduction to the Democratic Party was very much a learned one because I went from high school to a very conservative institution in the Naval Academy and asked questions and learned, okay, what is, 
what do Democrats believe? And I learned it the hard way in, you know, in the fire, essentially, you know, and then went to a very conservative military where people knew that I was, you know, a little bit liberal leaning and, you know, constantly on the hot seat about it. But you learn very quickly to stand up for what you believe in and you learn to, to distill it down to the deep core values of the Democratic Party, which for me have always been about building family and community and being there for one another. And that is what separates us from today's Republican Party, which is to shut out the other, which is completely counter to what I learned growing up as a Catholic kid in church, but we'll, you know, maybe we'll get there later. But it is this concept that we have each other's backs. I am my brother's keeper. Mm. I am my sister's keeper, right? It isn't just a line. It is how we build a stronger economy, how we build safer communities, right? Uh, we cannot get there by viewing the other as the other, right? We have to view the other as we. And you have been in public service pretty much your entire professional life, and you're approaching this congressional run through the lens of servant leadership. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you in the context of a congressional representative? That's a great question. It means showing up for people. And that's a refrain that you'll hear me do time and time again. But in the in the military, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was about putting others ahead of yourself. Service before self, right? What does that mean, right? It means you take care of yourself last. It means you are there in the good times and the bad times. You are there when somebody loses a daughter to gun violence in the community and you're there for the ribbon cutting for whatever new business is opening up that you've helped create right it is you know sticking together and showing up regardless of who's going to yell at you in a town hall the incumbent right now in my district john catco the three-term republican incumbent he hasn't held a real town hall in our district in as of this recording 819 days and it's because he's wow. afraid of, you know, being out of... three years. Yeah, which is insane. Uh, he doesn't want to be yelled at in public. And, you know, you, we have to have representatives in Congress who have the intestinal fortitude to understand that, yeah, sometimes you're going to have a town hall, and people are going to come and they're going to yell at you. But you've got to stand there like a leader and take it because that's part of the governing process. Sometimes people need to yell to feel heard and you need to be there for that right nobody owes you a congressional seat nobody owes you a super great time right you got to be there you got to show up you got to take the brunt of whatever comes and you got to be able to articulate a vision and bring people together despite all that that is something that the current incumbent does not do and something that you know we as democrats don't do a good job of articulating but it's something that i try to say in all four counties of this district which is look we signed on to that we're the only, right now I'm the only Democratic candidate who signed the town hall pledge, town hall project pledge, which was, you know, the bare bones is have four town halls in your district a year that are advanced ahead of time, open to the public, you don't screen questions. I said, that's the least, you know, we're going to do at least 12, right? If we're not doing one, a mo- one of these a month, right, somebody ought to hold me accountable because that is the core of governing. It is not go to Washington, D.C., get a bunch of lobbyists and special interest checks and then take some some sweet photo ops in the district. It is, no, you are in the community listening to what the issues are and creating legislation and helping people based on what you've heard, right? And it is, that is what I mean by service before self, 
right? Who cares about what your public opinion polls say or what the news is going to report, you know, some person yelled at you in a town hall. Take it. Take it and lead, right? And that's something that's missing today. So I have a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, I watched your launch video right before we recorded this and you filmed it as a message to your newborn son. Um, one, I want you to talk about that video, but two, let's say five years from now, Congressman Misso has been in office for a couple of terms already. What does your district look like? What is that vision for the future? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, it was important to us to talk about family because it is at the core, I think, of, of uh, my campaign is creating this sense of, you know, or not, I am not creating it, right? Community exists. We get into this process in campaigns where some candidates can feel like, oh, it's all about me. I am, you know, I am the only one that can save us, right, or whatever Donald Trump said. Or I alone can fix it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what it was, you know. Uh, but it really is less about you and all your wonderful, great ideas, although we have some, I have some, right? But it is about the tireless work being done on the ground in nooks and crannies of our communities that hardly ever sees the light of day, but which actually propels and powers our community. And it's about lifting those things up and bringing them forward. So, you know, I am not creating the community. The community exists. I am, as a member of Congress, boosting that community up. Um, but it's important for me uh, to talk about my family because the thing that I realized in the military, one of the things I realized was we have a lot of problems in the Department of Defense. Uh, you can't rely on somebody else to fix them, right? There is no person in some office in the Pentagon. And I've worked there and served there for a while and know that there is no office dedicated to fixing whatever problem you see that day. <laughs> you have to go do it. And as I looked around central New York and certainly in Washington, D.C., uh, saw a future for my kids where there were problems that people just weren't addressing, right? Problems like uh, Syracuse having one of the most segregated school districts in the country, right? problems like we talked about the corruption of agricultural subsidies that has gone on for decades but because nobody you know because we disincentivize rural candidates from running for office nobody really understands what's going on and the only people who do are republicans who may benefit from farm policy in their own pockets themselves so these common refrains right people who can take advantage of government and for me it was i'm not waiting for somebody to fix these problems for my kids, right? My kids are your kids, and we need to start fixing these problems right now. You know, I am a millennial, so it's good that I'm here talking with you right now. Uh, we have the most skin in the game. We have the most at stake in terms of what government does or does not do. We need more young parents. We need more young veterans. We need more young teachers and community organizers and farmers in Congress, in positions of leadership in our state, at the local level, and at the federal level. Um, and, you know, I think it's also important that you have someone in there who is actively changing diapers and knows how to clean up the crap in Congress. So there's a little bit of that, too. But, you know, what does the district look like in five years? Um, a place where we're proud to say that we're from central New York every day, right? That's a place that has stronger economic security, right? Where jobs are coming to the district. 
because we have leveled the playing field across the country and disincentivize this hyper-regionalization of our economy where, you know, you want to do tech, you go to San Francisco. You want to do finance, you come to New York, right? We start to level that playing field. Part of that is getting serious about antitrust, updating antitrust law for the first time in 105 years, but, um, you know, that's a topic for a different day. Um, it's about, you know, creating communities that are free from gun violence by actually having the guts to talk with people and not at them about what solutions look like. It is great if you want to be a candidate and say, ban assault weapons. I am there. And part of our gun violence plan is reinstating the federal assault weapons ban. But it's not enough to shout it into the ether or tweet it into the void. You have to show up where it's uncomfortable, which is what we'll be doing in Wayne County and Oswego County with gun owners who, yeah, may yell at us. But you know what? That's the only way we're going to move this conversation forward is by coming together on these issues and talking about it where it's difficult. It also means getting education right in our schools and boosting teachers, teacher pay, you know, and, and, and doing away with this notion that, you know, some districts, because they're wealthier than others, well, that's just the way it is. You know, we need to do better for our kids because education, honestly, is the biggest investment we make in our communities and what can make or break a child's life, you know, and out of a city like Syracuse and a region like Central New York, which has some of the most concentrated poverty in the entire country, right? It starts to look like ways to diffuse that. And it's also, honestly, in five years, I mean, hopefully we'll have started construction on uh, the community grid replacement to I-81 in the city. So that'll be good, too, uh, to finally uh, rectify 50 years of injustice in our uh, community. But it is you know, to stand up and say, yeah, I live in central New York and you should too, you know, uh, that's what I hope uh, we can all get to. And it will not be because of just me, right? It isn't going to be because Roger Misso, Congressman Misso passes, you know, this landmark bill that suddenly fixes everything with central New York. It is going to be because you finally have a member of Congress who is going to go to every group and every person, every farm, village, town, every ward of the city and is going to lift people up and shine a light on what is good and together help push out what is not so good and what needs fixing in our communities. And it's because we're going to do it together. Finally, we need a candidate. We need a congressman who does that. Uh, we're, we're really hurting for it. So you are running in a primary. There are a couple other candidates. For folks who are listening right now who might want to find you, learn more about you, maybe get involved in your campaign, how can they do that? Yeah, you can go to our website. It's uh, rogermisso.com. So that's R-O-G-E-R-M-I-S-S-O.com. We also tweet a lot of GIFs, uh, and we're on Facebook, so you can find us uh, there. Also, allegedly, on Instagram uh, a time or two. Um, and you can come to Central New York if you want to work on Listen, this is the last remaining D-plus district in the entire country that's still held by a Republican, and that's according to Cook's Partisan Voter Index. We are a D plus three district. If you want to flip a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives and you want to do it the right way and you want to kick ass while you're doing it, come to Central New York. We will find a place for you. You know, come work on the campaign or come knock some doors. You know, stuff some envelopes. Um, I will say one of the things that we are doing between now and November of this year is flipping the script a little bit. And I talked about candidates who can be a little selfish on the campaign trail, and it's. It becomes all about you. You know, 
I raised the most money, I hoarded the most money, you know, I've got the most press or, you know, here's my polling data. What I have sort of said is doesn't matter, right? This is about democratic leadership everywhere. And that means our county legislative races. It means our countywide races, which in Onondaga County is a really big deal this year. We've got a county executive, uh, a, a county district attorney race, which is in my opinion, one of the most important in the entire country. We've had a district attorney in for 28 years who has just created an air of negativity and, and almost corruption emanating from that office. And it's time, after 28 years, to signal to at least young lawyers in the community that uh, a DA position isn't a, you know, a fiefdom that you get to keep forever. So, But town board races matter, right? Village trustee races matter. And so what I've tried to do as a candidate is to leverage the resources of my campaign and the visibility of a congressional campaign to boost up these local candidates, right? To use our staff and our fellows and all volunteers to help knock doors, help you know create events, uh, help fundraise a little bit, right? Um, because it's more important that we build capacity in towns like Clay and Cicero and Oswego, Fulton, you know, Newark, Macedon, uh, Tully, uh, the south side and west side of Syracuse, right? It is more important for us to build capacity in the odd year than it is for us just to show up for a congressional election every two years. Um, if you do not play, if you do not show up in the odd year, you should not be able to uh, reap the benefits in the even year, right? And that is something that I think across the nation we probably need to do a better job of, and it's something I'm trying to lead by example by doing here in 2020. So um, tons and tons of opportunities in central New York, and it is you know, not too far from any of your big cities in the Northeast where maybe you got a safe House seat, a safe Senate seat, and you're looking to adopt a district. This is the district to do it. New York 24, the last remaining D-plus district in the entire country, still held by a Republican. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on. Roger, thank you so much. Thanks, Nathan. And Always a pleasure, man. Yeah, it really was. Anytime. And, and for our listeners, uh, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on social media, at Malen Politics. Find our podcast in iTunes, subscribe, rate us five stars. That's how other people find us. Uh, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again.